0: This episode of Ask a Biologist is being pulled from our special collections that have been stored in our secret vault. This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Today we're going to be talking about art, biology, big data, and games. As it turns out, these are just a few of the many areas and tools that our guest uses to explore and understand our planet. He's also a good example that you do not have to be a biologist to have a career that focuses on the living world and how it works. David McConville is a media artist that spends his time thinking and developing immersive worlds that you can explore. In other words, visual experiences that make you feel like you're there. He's also an advocate of games for learning. Now, these are not your typical Warcraft-like games, although there are some like um, Spore and Fate of the World that are just as entertaining as they are good for learning about our planet and life on our planet. One of David's newest collaborations is Worldviews Network. This project brings together artists, scientists, and educators for helping formal and informal learners understand global changes using scientific data. In addition to this work, David is the president of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and co-founder of the design and engineering company called Illuminati. Welcome to the show, David, and thanks for joining me. Thanks. Tell me about your ultimate game. You build these giant game engines based on billions of dollars worth of data. So, some of them you, you have built, and some of them I'm sure are in the design mode. Mm. What is your ultimate game? How do you see it playing out?
1: First off, it's huge teams of people that are building these things. (laughs) I by no means want to take credit of all of this work. What I really focus on is how are we using these to their utmost capacity? How are we bringing them to the largest audiences? How are we using them effectively? And kind of my ultimate game is one that we're really working on now with a project called the Worldviews Network that is taking billions of dollars worth of space science data and earth science data and figuring out... How do you tell the story of human life in the context of everything we've been able to observe? How do we really get to understand and appreciate our home in the universe? Because we are in this extraordinary place that is so amazing that we don't have to think about breathing. We don't have to think about you know where our water is coming from most of the time. And we don't have to think about the billions of bacteria that are in the soils generating all of the food that... We're just now really starting to understand the levels of complexity. And so my goal with using these tools is to help people really appreciate the beauty and the the fortunate position we're in of being able to be the recipients of all of this to the point where we just take it for granted. You know, we just get up in the morning and we don't even have to think about it. But trust me, if you go to Mars— Every single day, your life is going to be filled with toil because you're trying to just you know, meet the basic requirements of sustenance, and you have to import it all in there with you. And so what I like to do is to help people to resituate themselves, to understand the context that we are in here, that we've been taking for granted for a long time. And I think, honestly, that we've been taking for granted to such a degree that we're abusing the privilege that we have of being on this planet. And that the more we can use scientific data and visualizations and, and stories and conversations to really bring out the interactions of all of these systems and help people to appreciate that, not only appreciate it, but also understand what they can do about it. That's my goal.
0: So the. The games, you know, when anybody thinks about games, you know, it's going to be like World of Warcraft Mm and I could name probably a lot of others even though I'm not a big gamer. Yeah. Are you really talking about games?
1: To some degree. I mean, so within the gaming engines, that's more of what we're using is they're like the underlying structures of the software that enable us to visualize scientific data. And we use those so that we can interact with the data, we can interact with these visualizations, we can say, hey, you know, let's go out and fly to the moon and understand the ways in which the moon and the earth are interacting and look at the earth's magnetic field and look at the sun and, you know, fly way out to other galaxies, whatever it is, that that technically is not a game from the definition of how people generally consider that. You know, it's almost like sitting around a campfire and being able to look up at the stars and tell stories. It's a tool that's being used to explain and to explore a lot of different ideas. There are games that are specifically geared towards helping people to understand complex notions, like the best examples generally come from Will Wright, who developed the game SimEarth and the game Spore. And it's one in which uh, you know, I'm sure some of the people listening to this program are familiar with it because you get to play with life forms in a petri dish and it gradually evolves into, you know, interplanetary relationships, right? <laughs> Intergalactic even. And so that has very much a game structure built into it so that someone can go on and play and you know, get to higher and higher levels and explore all their different ideas around how their own invented forms of life might actually unfold over the course of an evolutionary process. And there's a whole, you know, continuum in between. It's not cut and dry. It's not a black and white whether it's a game or whether it's not a game, especially now that so many of the games are actually available on iPhones and we have these augmented reality games where the virtual is bleeding over into the real and there's not nearly as much of a distinction as there was, you know, when when You and I were young and the Ataris were first coming out like you knew when you were playing Pong. (laughs) But now, like, gaming as a model of learning is becoming very, very powerful. And I think what we're doing is actually rediscovering something that our ancestors have known for a really long time. Games have actually been integral to the ways in which animals learn and humans across the world have used games to teach about really important concepts
0: so is there a game out there that especially one online that you would recommend someone go try out and get a feel for they're learning games and and most of the time those really look like learning games yeah yeah. but then there are other games that uh, i've heard kids even say it's okay to trick us yeah in other words this is fun i really enjoy it Mm. and even if they know they're being tricked it's okay you have any of those
1: Actually, I usually recommend Spore because I think that it's really one of the more interesting examples of literally starting with a petri dish. You know, I mean, like it's got these kind of scientific metaphors going on there that provide for some very powerful tools. There's another game called Fate of the World that lets you kind of run scenarios around global changes, and you can basically select here. I'm going to provide all the water and you know, wind energy and solar energy over here, or I'm going to go nuke all of this stuff. I mean, it, it lets you run through scenarios so that you can kind of play with the idea of what are the future options for humanity. And I tend to be inspired by an idea that kind of a, this polymath in the 20th century named Buckminster Fuller came up with. He was kind of like a Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. And he had an idea called the world game, and the notion of the world game was that you would have – he created these giant maps, and in each person would represent so many people on the planet. And then they would have to start negotiating based on the resources that were available. And the world game for me has been a very powerful inspiration because as our technologies have improved – it's becoming more and more possible for us to actually run these kind of scenarios and to sort of play with the idea of you know the fact that we really are all kind of crew members aboard this spaceship that we call Earth, right? And And if you think of yourself being on a big ship and you've got so many resources and you have to depend on the resources that are there, you also have to depend on each other. You have to collaborate and cooperate with others in order to understand how do we – structure the life aboard the ship so that it can work for everybody. Because eventually what you understand, if you look at the game from that level, is that we are all deeply, deeply interconnected. It's not a I win, you lose thing, because when you start getting that attitude, which is honestly, I think, one of the false impressions of evolution, is that it's all been survival of the fittest. And what's come out from from so much of biology is the critical importance of cooperation. And so with World Game, what you really start to see when you look at it from that level is that cooperation is everything. It's so critical for for us to be able to win this this game together.
0: Well, it's also adaptation, of course. You know, If you have changes, especially severe changes, whether it be weather or any other condition, yep. it's not necessarily the fittest that's in the condition that's going to do well. Right. One good example everybody talks about, it, of course, is the extinction of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But all the little mammals that were around mm-hmm. at that time – they were fine. Yeah. They could actually deal with that catastrophic change. Um, world game. You know, it's interesting. You remind me. When I was in high school, we played that. And it was interesting because it wasn't a matter of who wins over someone else. Mm-hmm. It's who could keep the game going the longest. Right. <laughs> right. right. And so that really is what we're talking about Absolutely. here. How do we keep the game Yeah. Going the longest. Talking about the game and keeping the game going longest, there are a couple of words, a couple ideas that people hear regularly, climate change, global warming. And unfortunately, they're being used so often and there are things that seem contrary. It's easy to say more recently we've had incredible cold weather in parts of the country that – People might think of it in that very snapshot time. That what is this they're talking about? Things are changing. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a good way to call it or not, uh, climatologists may not be thrilled with me. I, mean, I call it wacky weather, yeah. rather than saying global warming or global or weirding. Global <laughs> weirding, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about it because you focus on that, not necessarily from a biological standpoint, but again, you talk about this is our spaceship, yeah, and there are environmental conditions that work great for our spaceship. What's going on that we need to be looking into that all this billions of dollars of data you've been seeing?
1: Well, I'm with you. I think that the ideas of climate change and global warming have become so politicized and they're so poorly understood from a general perspective of the difference between climate and weather that it's very easy for people to just kind of have these reactions. Like, if it's snowing, then what do you mean it's getting warmer? And I think the thing to understand about the systems that we depend on, the water systems, the systems of soil, of other life forms, of the climate, is that they've achieved a level of stability, especially over the past 10,000 years of really the, the span of human civilization. And what's happened is that in the past 100 years, in particular, that our discovery and use of fossil fuels has started to destabilize some of that stability because it's been a system that has achieved this what ecologists call dynamic non-equilibrium. You know, It's one of those fancy terms, but it allows the earth to regulate itself because of the life forms and the oceans and the atmosphere, and it's all of this complex stuff that interacts together. But what's going on is that We as humans are burning all these fossil fuels, and we're not only burning fossil fuels, we're putting them into plastic bottles. And we're throwing those bottles away, and they're ending up in the ocean, and the plastic is polluting the oceans. And we're doing all of these things that, because of the incredible energy that is being released from these fuels... And the degree to which they really have improved the lifestyle of many people on the planet, they've improved the the ease of travel, our capacity for making products, but it's a double-edged sword in that we've taken all of that for granted um, to a large degree. And what's happened is that it's enabled more and more and more of us to be born and it's enabled more and more uh, countries to take part in this industrial economy that – it's started to really press on the stability of these systems. And what we're starting to see now are the impacts of that. Now, whether that's in the form of trash, then, you know, in third world countries with all the e-waste, electronic waste, or whether that's in the plastics in the ocean, or whether that's in these long-term trends of climate, that it's not what we would expect from the past. And... There's debate over how much of it is the sun and how much of it is, you know, these different factors. And, of course, the answer is it's everything. <laughs> it's, not, it's not any one thing. But the fact of the matter is that it's relatively obvious to anyone that goes outside. Ask the astronauts on the space station. If you ever look at images of the Earth at night, it's unbelievable how much power we're burning to light up our streets. You can see it from outer space.
0: Right, right. The change in balance, this equilibrium, <clears throat> all our bodies are based on an equilibrium mm-hmm. too. Without equilibrium, we don't survive and at a global scale, the same thing. So it's that balance yep. and, and so I get the idea. makes sense. Too much of one thing is throwing things out of balance. What's the answer? How do we work our way out of this? If the scientists have found the reasons, the many reasons – What are we going to do to get that balance back? What are the best tools? Sure, sure. And and let me add one more thing. Mm -hmm. As a student, what would they be focusing on for now and into the future? What are good skill sets? Because that's really what we need is just good skill sets.
1: Well, I think that science is one part of it. Science is important because it helps you empirically observe and understand the nature of these interacting systems but i also think that understanding design is absolutely critical because it's designers that you know make these microphones we're talking into that probably make the computer that you're listening to this on or make the headphones you're wearing and if you look at design kind of from a meta level from like if you step back and you consider what are these products we're creating what are these things that we're doing and where do they end up right and I think the most valuable skill set that we can have right now generally is what's called ecological literacy. And unfortunately, this isn't really taught in a lot of schools, but it's understanding how ecosystems work. It's absolutely critical, and there's a great site called ecoliteracy.org, and they have a whole curriculum uh, online and uh, tools for teachers and all kinds of things. But if you look at ecosystems and you study what nature has developed it's amazing it's so efficient and it's so beautiful that like i said we just take it for granted we don't even think about it because it's so flawless it's not like you know you get the blue screen of death when you're typing on your computer or the spinny beach ball you know like nature's systems just work in the most efficient manner and studying those systems Helps us as humans, as we get more and more powerful with our science, it can help to guide the direction that we're going in so that the systems we're designing actually work in conjunction with all of these systems that have been evolving for a very long time and have achieved this sort of elegant synergy with all of the systems that it's embedded in all of us as people, we know we're embedded in our families, but we're also within our cultures and our societies and the global system that we have that, you know, whether it's the economy or whether it's the biological world and the ecologies, that ecological literacy is about helping us to understand how it is we interact with all of these larger systems. And so the combination to me of understanding ecologies, but also understanding the process of design. How are we intentionally creating products? How are we intentionally creating infrastructures so that we can be as healthy as possible in the future? And not just us, but our kids and our grandkids and people a thousand years from now, that this is the most important work of our time.
0: It sounds really serious, and it is. But you're also really passionate about this, and I can't believe that your daily existence is just tied into that. And, and I'm, what I'm getting at is I'm passionate about what I like to do as, as a scientist and as a biologist. And part of that passion is there's fun too. Mm-hmm. And so if we figure out how to make all these things that would help the planet get back in balance fun, I bet we'd make a, a big impact. So, where's the fun in this? Where, what are we going to do? What, what are we going to be able to do?
1: Well, personally, I mean, I have, my company makes inflatable domes, and I go around the world with these inflatable domes, and I give people tours of the observable universe, and I have yet to encounter anybody that doesn't want to walk inside of a big bouncy dome and <laughs> fly through the universe. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a lot of angles here, but that's why I think the idea of gaming is really important. and. I think that appreciating our ability to really enjoy ourselves as human beings, to appreciate beauty, is absolutely critical as we try to communicate these bigger ideas. And that for way too long, the idea of environmentalism, it's almost been this sort of anti-human thing to a lot of people. They sort of draw these distinctions. It's like, oh, you just don't like what we are and you know, you'd rather see us not here or whatever. And the thing is, when you... Really start to open your eyes and see the beauty that's in nature and the incredible ways that we interact with the world around us, and the incredible ways that we can begin to see it as a game. That we're actually really fortunate to be alive at this time in history. We have more access to more knowledge, to more people, to more history, to more understanding of life, as well as the power individually to tap into all of that and do something with it. That I personally, I mean, when I wake up, I'm Grateful every single day for being alive right now because there were large spans of human history where nothing would really change for tens of thousands of years. (laughs) And at this point, it's like every single day you can get up and discover entirely new fields of understanding. You can go out and engage new ideas and encounter new people and get online. You don't even have to think about it. You know, you friend somebody in Africa on Facebook and it's like, oh, yeah, sure. But I mean, that's so extraordinary. It's amazing that that can happen. And so I think it's really important to keep that context in mind. And what I would like to see specifically, and it's starting to happen, is the gaming industry really starting to tackle some of these problems a lot more. There's a a book recently out by a lady named Jane McGonigal called Reality is Broken and Games Can Fix It. And she's trying to really encourage the gaming community to take on these challenges and to really crowdsource the intelligence of all of these gamers so that we can be looking for problems, so that we can be understanding all the different ways we can be looking at these complexities and discovering new things through play.
0: So is Fate of the World one of those types of games?
1: It is. It's, I mean, it's it's interesting. I haven't played it yet because it hasn't come out yet, but I mean, i talked to the developer, and he says it's been fascinating watching what people do because you can pull cards about what you're going to do, right? And so you have the option of installing all the renewable energy you want and doing all these things, or you have the option of like, you know, nuking a country, right? It's pretty morbid. But he says that what happens is that the first time around, most people, including the scientists, they try to destroy everything and see how fast that can happen. The second time around, they try to figure out how to make everything perfect. And then the third time around, they try to figure out something that's going to work. (laughs) And so I think what he was saying, it's telling him and what it suggests to me more than anything is that by having environments that we can work through ideas, we don't have to go through the pain of actually waiting for all of that to happen in the real world, in the physical, ecological, biological world that we need to be able to run through these scenarios in our heads so that we can understand there are consequences to our actions and that while we have the capacity and the luxury, honestly, of being able to think about some of these things, let's just figure out what all the options could possibly be and try to think as big a picture as possible so that we can engage and take responsibility for where we're going as human beings.
0: What do you classify yourself as? And I'm going to set you up. Do you think of yourself as a scientist, an artist, uh, a designer, or something else?
1: Generally, none of the above, and I always had a problem with all of it. I mean, I'm definitely not a scientist, even though I hang out with them all the time, some of my best friends, <laughs> and, I, and I'm you know, kind of an avid reader of a lot of different sciences. And you know, and I create art, but I think that calling myself an artist, I've, it's never set well with me because I almost feel like, you know, you call yourself an artist and you give yourself a pass, that it's just like it's your prerogative to be creative all the time. And I'm like, well, that's part of it. That's fun, but I'm not comfortable with that. A designer, I mean, that's kind of interesting because I, you know, work on designing things, but I've never been able to really pigeonhole what I'm doing in particular. And I think that's probably true of a lot of people out there. They don't quite know where they fit. And I don't really think it's necessary because I don't see any walls or or lines in the sand or, or heavy distinctions between science and art and design and the humanities. I, I feel like all of that's a continuum of existence. It's all parts of life that we can engage. And... By creating all of these distinctions, then we try to categorize everything and specialize everything, and and we get very, very specialized thinking about one particular thing, and one of my favorite things is to constantly step back away from the specialization. The specialization is critical, and it gives you deep insights into very specific things, but the skill set that we need more now than anything as a species is to be able to step back and see the big picture.
0: With this program, I ask three questions of my guests, the same three, and uh, I'll modify it slightly because typically I have the a biologist or a classical scientist. The first one is: When did you first figure out what you really were going to do? Was there really an aha moment that you really, in your case, felt like, "Yeah, this is this is my niche. This is my place. This is mm-hmm. the this is my trim. You know, mm-hmm. I got my trim going yeah, here."
1: Yeah. I always, when I think about that, I always credit it with, when I was very young, I think I was four or five, I would, there was a chair in my grandparents' house and I would get up and I would, there was a light switch and an exposed bulb on the ceiling that didn't have a fixture on it. And I would flip that light switch and I would watch the filament turn on and off. And I was always completely intrigued by what was happening, like what was creating that sudden creation and that dissolution. And It's interesting because out of that, I, I sort of as a kid, I wanted to either become an astronaut or an actor, and so now I'm kind of doing both, where I get to go around, I'm really lucky because I, I get to play with these data sets of the universe, and in a way, I'm sort of being an actor, and at the same time I'm flying around the universe. But that filament, that kind of coming in and going out, it's for me that's a metaphor for what is it that brought us here, what created all of this, and where are we going with it all? And so I think that for whatever reason, you know, like, I think this happens to a lot of us, right? You're very young and some of your earliest memories have a huge impact on how your life unfolds, but that's I think that was that was my particular moment.
0: So what if I took it all away from you right now? I'm not going to let you do what you do, mm-hmm. which is kind of tough because you do a lot. Mm. But if I remove the science and the kind of collaborative design element to it, and and what this is is more of an exercise of what would you do if you had a different kind of life that you needed to live? Not that you get to do it all over again, because yeah. a lot of us would say, you know, I, you know, this is pretty cool. I enjoyed yeah. doing what I'm doing. What would you shift to? What would be your your ultimate career?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I definitely answer in the the f- former what you just said. I mean, I'm pretty happy with where I've ended up, but given the choice, I think. I would probably choose to be a biologist (laughs) (laughs) or an ecologist more specifically because I I really am becoming more and more intrigued with the the workings of all of these systems. And I've gained this incredible respect and understanding of why people are driven to understand living systems. And living systems are absolutely fascinating – there's still not an agreed-upon definition of what they are, and I would love to do more field work around that, like actually studying these things. I mean, most of what I do is in these, you know, realms of computing and things, and like for instance, uh, one of the m- my colleagues I'm working with right now, she is an ecologist working at the California Academy of Sciences that, that specializes in seahorses. So she gets to dive and find seahorses in the ocean. That's so cool. <laughs> you know? So I, I think that that would definitely be my, my preference.
0: The last question. Hmm. Someone wants to be like you. They want to be the scientist, artist, renaissance person that can do and blend it all. What's your advice?
1: I would say don't set any initial parameters for yourself, like really find out what you're passionate about. Priority number one. I didn't get here by any linear process. I had no idea where I was gonna end up with all of this. I've always followed my intuition on that. And I've started reading, even when I was in junior high, I would start reading books that were so far afield from what we were being taught in class, but I felt compelled to go in that direction. And I would really encourage that. I mean, I think a lot of times we undervalue intuition. And I think that's a a critically important skill that we all have. And even though when you're first starting down whatever particular path it is, it might not have any clear resolution. I mean, I had no idea what I was going to be doing when I grew up. That over time, if you just stick with what you really care about, it will present itself to you. Things do unfold. And you just have to be patient. You really have to understand that, that the jobs of the future don't exist yet. You know, like <laughs> we're inventing these things as we go along.
0: Any skill sets?
1: Actually, the most important skill set of the future is going to be understand how ecologies and living systems work. That that is the primary challenge facing humanity, especially like green chemistry. I take that back. I might be. A, I might really go into green chemistry too, because these are people that are looking at how do you create materials that can work within an environment that doesn't degrade the environment, doesn't introduce toxins. My recommendation, whatever field you want to go into, understand how that field can impact humanity and all of the species on Earth in a very positive way. And in
0: order to do that, you just
1: have to know how all these interactions happen.
0: Well, David, I want to thank you for being on Ask a Biologist. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been media artist David McConville. David is the president of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and co founder of the Illuminati. Now, this is the design and engineering company that is particularly good at creating immersive projection spaces for a range of purposes, you know, like um, your local science center. He's also a creative director of Worldviews Network. This is a collaboration of artists, scientists, and educators using storytelling and visualization to engage people in discussions about the environment and to help understand global changes and how they impact life on Earth. For those of you who might want to explore Worldviews Network, the address is worldviews.net. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, You can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website, the address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.